0: Move on this morning in our study of the book of Romans, chapter 3. I found myself this week wishing I was still back in Revelation, because <laughs> Revelation was a lot easier <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, it's just, if, you, if you could see the, these things in, in the original languages, the, the Greek that John used was very plain and simple and clean and easily understood without a lot of digging and et cetera, and I could almost read most of it right off the page, but let me tell you, when you get into the writings of Paul, it is a totally different ball of wax. It is very deep. It is very lofty. It is very thought-provoking, and at the same time, it is a struggle to get through a lot of it and and to get the kind of handle on some of the things that Paul says that I really need to have to be able to come before you very well prepared for these sermons and so I just would relish in in your prayers for me every week as I prep to do this because it's it's one of the most important books as far as I'm concerned as far as the Reformed faith is concerned in all of the Bible certainly not equal to the Gospels by any sense of the word but maybe after the Gospels maybe the second most important book that you have in the New Testament it is a is a treatise. It is probably the greatest uh, theological treatise that has ever been written. And, uh, and it's written for a purpose, and the purpose is to clarify all kinds of issues and all kinds of points that have become muddied already in the church back in the first century. To get the church that is beginning to stray away in different, many different directions with different thoughts and etc. back on track. So I don't know how much reading and studying you've done in the book of Revelation, but I just want to encourage you to do it, and when you finish it, do it again, and do it again, and do it again, and maybe after you've done it about 50 times, you might really get a good handle on a lot of it. Uh, With that said, however, we're going to press on this morning, and just remember that everything that Paul writes here builds on what he has said before, and that he Uh, As he's teaching these things, and some of them are very difficult things, he anticipates questions. He knows the things, the questions that are going to come to people's minds. Why? Because they're questions that have come to his own mind. And Paul has wrestled with all of these things himself. And he's bringing to us uh, the conclusions that he has drawn, the answers to those questions. And let me just tell you this uh, from the very beginning that sometimes he has answers to questions, most definitely. Uh, And and directly, other times, maybe not so directly. And there's some questions he doesn't have any answers for because there are no answers for those questions. At least for us, where we are in this time, in this place. Maybe in the new heavens, we will know more. But for now, we have to be satisfied with what God has revealed to us. So we are in chapter number three. And we'll be picking up with verse 19. And I'm going to read through all the rest of the chapter, even though we probably won't get that far. But let me just read this from verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Uh, Through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting is excluded? By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? He is not the God of is He not the God of Gentiles also. Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? And then we have that phrase, may it never be, or may God forbid, on the contrary, we establish the law. Well, we talked a lot in the last few weeks about the distinction between natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation being nature around us, that it just speaks to the existence of God, that for all this to be, there has to be a creator who did it all. Uh, That is sufficient to render every person that has ever lived without an excuse. There will be no one that stands before the judgment seat of Christ in the end that can say honestly that I didn't know there was a God. Because there's sufficient evidence to bring all of us to that understanding, to that conclusion. We've also spent a lot of time talking about special revelation. And this is where the word of God comes into the picture. That God has given a special means of revelation. It's from this that we are able to derive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's through this that we come to the conclusion and understanding that people are not saved by their own works. They're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has lived and died that they would have life in him. That is the big distinction between all people. The big dividing point is not whether you are a Jew or a Gentile or a Puerto Rican or whatever. The dividing line is this. Is do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior or do you not? That is the real distinction to be made between all people and the only one that matters. The only one that really counts in the end. Because we're sinners, we've we've created all kinds of distinctions that we, we make between us and other people, and et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera. But the Bible wipes all that away. The distinction to be made is, do you believe in Jesus Christ and know him as Lord and Savior, or do you not? If you do, then you, you know the blessing already to some degree. And you will know that blessing in, in, in ways that are just so great and phenomenal that you can't even begin to imagine those now. I hope that's one of the things you got from the book of Revelation. That our concept of where how things are going to be is nothing compared to the reality of how things will be. We can't even go there. It's just so far above us and beyond us. That we will either live with a Jesus for eternity and... The new heaven, or we will suffer punishment for our rebellion for all of eternity. That is the distinction to be made amongst people. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now, who is under the law? Well, there's a sense in which all people are under the law because I would argue that there is a sense of natural law, not just natural revelation, there's a sense of natural law, and that is this, is that natural revelation should bring you to the conclusion there's a God, which means this, that you're supposed to recognize and give worship to that God. I would say there's also natural law that we know. That every person should know, whether they've read the Bible or heard anything about Jesus, just as they've been born into this world, it should just be as clear as the nose on their face to everyone. That if you don't want to be stolen from, don't steal from other people. That if you don't want to be murdered, then don't take the life of someone else. If you don't want to be lied to, don't lie to other people. It's just common sense. You don't need the Bible even to conclude that stuff. Just being a person ought to be enough. Every mouth may be closed. This is one of the purposes that is revealed that God has and given the law. When you think of, of someone's mouth being closed, what, you, what comes to their mind? I would imagine it's stuff like this. Is, is Maybe they've been very wordy. Maybe they've been very mouthy. Maybe they haven't been. But there comes a time when they have nothing to say. There's nothing to say. There's nothing they can say. If you look in the Bible, and in, in, in their particular people that, that come into the holy presence of God, and what you're going to find in common with just about all of them is this is just silence on their part. They may have talked, and they may have bragged, and they may have done this and that and the other and whatever, been very talkative, but when, when they come into the holiness, the fullness of the holiness of the presence of God, they are quiet. They may have thought highly of themselves and expressed it verbally before that. They may have bragged about all their good works and their goodness and this and that and the other. But when God appears to them in power and might, their mouth is a closed trap. Job. Remember the story of Job? When God finally confronts him, this is what Job says. I lay my hand on my mouth. There's nothing I can say. I've got nothing left to say. I shouldn't have said anything to start with. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Unclean lips. I've said things that I should not have said. I've talked about things that I didn't know enough about to even say anything about, but I've done it. And now I see the folly of the things that have passed over my lips. Habakkuk says, I heard and I feared. My lips quivered and I trembled. Think about Paul, the writer of this epistle. On, on the way to Damascus, on that road to Damascus, with the willful intent and the paperwork from the uh, the Pharisees uh, to go to Damascus and persecute Christians, as he had so actively done in Jerusalem on the way. And, uh, and suddenly there was a, a light that appeared and a voice speaking to Paul, which no one else heard, even though there were other people there with him. I always... Wonder what in the world was going through Paul's mind as he heard Jesus talking to him. The Jesus that he, oh, by the way, had persecuted people for believing and in, in speaking about his resurrection. And now Paul himself is being confronted with this one that is supposedly dead. And Paul's got to be thinking, oh, my goodness. I've been teaching in, 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 you know, people and, and per- persecuting people who were, for the simple reason of saying that they, they were saying that Jesus rose from the dead and now he's talking to me. Uh-oh. Oops. I sure blew that one, didn't I? Man has been very boisterous and and braggartly toward God in a general sense ever since the Garden of Eden. Think about all of the charges that people have brought against God. How many people say, I don't know if there is a God, but if there is, then there's some things I want to talk to him about. There's some questions I want to ask him when I see him. their mouth will be shut. Every mouth will be silenced at the day of judgment that's coming. No one will have a defense. No one will have anything to say worth saying. And only those who have Jesus to speak on their behalf Will fare well on that day. And they will fare very well on that day. Blessings beyond imagination. All of the world. Now, let me just say this that sometimes the word all, you know, you can find the equivalent of all in every language. In Greek, it's pause. But in every language, what you'd find is this is that sometimes when you use that word all, you mean definitely, no doubt about it, exactly, that's it. Specific. However, very often we use all in just kind of a loose kind of way, sometimes not really meaning literally all, but that meaning maybe a great many of, or or at least some of, or, you know, something like that. And, And you'd find this is true even in Scripture, that sometimes it's meant to be taken literally and sometimes it's not. And so you and I, when we read through the Bible, we need to be trying to figure out what is intended here. Am I supposed to understand this means definitely a limited number, no more, period, absolutely all? Or is it just using all in a more general kind of sense? For instance, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The woman at the well in, in, in John chapter 4, Jesus told her some things. And after her, her conversation with Jesus, she left there and she went into the village and she bumped into some people. And she was, she was talking to them and she said that she met a man who told, told her everything, that she, all that she had ever, had ever done. Now, do we believe that's what Jesus did, that he stood there and he told her absolutely everything that she had ever done in all of her life? I mean, there are times when it's meant to be taken not literally, and other times it is, but context determines whether it means literal. And only when there's question or there's reason from the context to to come to the conclusion it's not meant to be taken literally do we do that. And you find no ground at all here to do that. In other words, Paul is not talking about all in that loose sense, he's talking about all in the very tight, closed sense. Means all people, everybody, no one exempted in all of history, period. Everybody. Because by the works of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, the problem with legalists is this. is They believe that by keeping their rules, their laws... And you've heard me say this a million times, that Christianity is different from every religion in at least two aspects. And one of those is this, is every other religion is about you keeping particular rules or you keeping particular laws, you keeping particular regulations. And your standing has everything to do with how well you're doing with that. Christianity says this, it says, there is, by the way, a a set of rules and laws, those Ten Commandments, the law of God, and oh, by the way, you don't keep them all, and nobody does. That's why Paul says here, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God hasn't given us these laws with the expectation. Do you think God really expected us to keep all these laws? Do you think he's that simple-minded? That he didn't know how we were going to respond to those Ten Commandments and etc.? Do you think that he created man with a full expectation that he would follow his law to the letter? If that's the God that you worship, you need to read your Bible a little bit more because God is way, way bigger than that. He knew that we would fall into sin. It wasn't something that just happened along the way by accident or some freak thing that went on. Before he created Adam and Eve, he knew what the result was going to be of it. He knew that they would fall in sin. He knew they would fall in the Garden of Eden. And that we would all be in this mess of sin. He gave us the law for a lot of reasons. Yes, yes, we need to strive to keep it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying just ignore the law, don't have anything to do with it, etc. We need to do the best we can at keeping those laws that God has given to us. Whether they be through natural revelation or even more particularly for us through special revelation. We need to be about our Father's business. And this is our Father's business. See, this is the problem with legalism. That is, no one does it. Even the very best fall short. In reality, is when you look at the law of God in its entirety, it's not that we fall just a little bit short. It's that we fall so far short it's not even worth talking about. And it's true for all of us. Now, sin likes to whisper in our ears things. The sin in you can mislead you, and it misleads me all the time. We are prideful people, and it's very easy for us to start believing that we're better than other folks. It's very easy for us to be prideful as we are and look down our nose at other people thinking, I would never do that, I could never do that, so on and so on. Let me just tell you something, you start thinking that way too much, God's got you out there on the slippery slope, and he may let you slide to points you never thought you would go to. There is one thing that keeps you from sinning worse than you do right now, and that is the restraining power of God in you. If he ever lets you go, you could do anything. We are all fully capable of committing the worst, grossest sins that are conceivable to us. Every one of us. But through that law comes the knowledge of sin. How would we know that we were sinners if there wasn't law? you understand that's one of the primary purposes of God giving us the law? But there's, there's something that eludes most people, and that is this, and that is that even though God has given us the law, we don't keep it. And that's true for all of us. And that brings us into verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Righteousness, my friends, is perfect righteousness. Absolute righteousness is the key to heaven. Without it, the door cannot be opened. Period. It's closed shut. It's slammed shut. It will not open for anyone that does not have the key of righteousness to open it. So what is the key to righteousness? Well, it is faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is the righteous one. He's the only sinless person. He's the only one that has perfectly kept the law of God in absolutely every way. And let me tell you, if Jesus ever sinned one single time, then you and I don't have a Savior. We're hell bound and we think we're going to heaven and we're going to hell. If Jesus ever sinned one single time, even what we would consider to be the smallest, minute, almost non- or, or meaningless sin, You understand that Jesus, in fact, is the law. He's not only the law keeper, he was the law giver. It's his invention. He not only kept it, he wrote it. Sure, the father had something to do with it too. Most definitely the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it was a joint effort. The writing down and the giving of this law. No flesh will be justified. Now, do you understand what justification means? It's a theological term, and it just simply means to be declared just or to be declared righteous. You have to be declared righteous in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Without it, you can't enter. No one can enter. You don't have it within you to gain that righteousness yourself. No one does. I don't want to blow it all, but verse 23 is one of the most important verses in this whole book. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that all really, in this case, means all. Everybody. Every single person. But there is a way that God can make us righteous. We can't even do that ourselves. That is by placing our faith not in me, not in my own ability. Knowing that I have fallen so far short that it's not even worth talking about. If I'm going to have that righteousness, there's got to be someone else that gains it for me. I cannot do it. I don't have the wherewithal. It's an impossibility. My legalism is dead. It will not save me. I have to have a Savior. I must have a Savior. And that Savior has to be someone who has kept the law on my behalf. And I am justified. In other words, I'm declared righteous not because of what I have done. I'm declared righteous because of what He has done. My salvation is based 100% absolutely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not on any sense of my own righteousness. Because I don't have any. Because even my best works are always tainted with sin. My motives are never pure. My intentions are never 100% right. Even when I do things that I'm supposed to do, very often I'm doing those things at least to some degree for the wrong reasons. And with God, the reasons are just as important as the actions. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested in this talking about Jesus, being witnessed by the law and the prophets who talked about Jesus, the, the, the Messiah to come. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction. He's talking about distinction between believers, because what was going on in the church in those days, there was still a real distinction made between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul strikes down that whole idea that, yeah, at one time you were apart, but you're not anymore. We're one body. We're being built into a single body, the temple of Jesus Christ. Period. doesn't matter what your nationality is or what your heritage is. The crazy thing is there's a big part of the church today that still wants to make a great distinction between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. I don't know how they come to that conclusion without ripping Ephesians chapter 2 out of their Bible. Now we're going to see Paul making references to Jew, Gentiles and you know, Jews all through the book of Romans. need to understand that. Keep that in context. But some of the things that people conclude from it cannot be what was intended. That the thrust of the New Testament is one body in Christ. Not one body divided into two groups. One body is one body. No distinction. There's also no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, like we were talking about. It means everybody. Absolutely everybody. No exceptions at all. There is one, and only one. His name is Jesus. Other than Jesus, we are all in this boat together. We're in the same boat as all people, everyone that has ever breathed the air. Sinners. All of us. Very often people think that I'm a sinner because I sin. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about here is you sin because you're a sinner. You have the heart of a sinner. That's why you sin. There's a distinction to be made there. In other words, you have a diseased heart. You're born with it. So do I. Can you imagine trying to do heart surgery on yourself? Hold the light a little closer so I can see better what I'm doing. How often do people try to do this spiritual heart surgery on themselves? You can't. It's God's work. He's the surgeon. He's the spiritual heart surgeon. I know some of you in this room don't feel very special. Maybe you haven't been treated very well in your life. People maybe look down upon you through your lifetime as not make, maybe making the mark and always falling short and this, that, and the other. And but That's not the gospel. In the gospel is we've all fallen short. Every one of us. Not just a little bit. You think you know yourself? You think you know your sin? Ha. If you really did, you would be completely undone like Job and Isaiah and these other people. You are far worse than you can even conceive of being. And so am I. I really believe this. I I think one of the biggest issues in the church is that very often church people see themselves as being the holy ones. And they see all the other people as being the sinners. And at the same time, all those other people can look at them and see how bad they are. Let me tell you, I was an unbeliever until I was in my 30s. And one of the reasons I was was because of hypocrisy I saw in the church. I didn't see these loving, caring people that were reaching out to the world around them that was in distress. What I saw more than anything else was people wagging their finger at other people saying, this is what you need to do, but at the same time not showing them how to do it. That's what hypocrisy is when it comes to this stuff. Let me ask you something. Do you have a standard for other people? I mean, we do. We have all kinds of standards for other, what our expectations are for other people when it comes to just about everything. What standard do you hold yourself to? The same one? No. You hold yourself to a lesser one. Because you can ex- excuse away whatever bad behavior you might see in yourself. In other words, our expectations are higher for other people than they are for ourselves. Verse 24. We're not going to get through here, so this is important. Being justified as a gift by His grace. Now, what does grace mean? Well, grace is totally, absolutely, no doubt about it, completely unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor granted. Not because of anything you've done, not because you're better, not because you're gooder. That's a word. I just want to make sure you're awake. You understand this, my friends, is the hallmark of Christianity. This is the thing that sets real Christianity apart from every other religion. It is you're saved by grace. Not because you've earned it, not because you deserve it, but because God is gracious and He loves you for whatever reason He does. And He has paid a horrendous price to have you as His own. God saves. We don't. Now when you realize that, when you realize the great cost that he has paid to have you because he wanted you, because he loves you for whatever reason, how can we ever be hard-hearted against anybody? Of all people, grace ought to flow from us like... I was going to say molasses, but that wouldn't be good, would it? Just freely from us. We should just ooze grace to everybody, especially the people who deserve it the least. You wonder why the church, the, all these people out here are staying away from the church? One of the reasons is because that's not what they see when they look. Hallelujah for grace. No grace, no salvation for anybody, not one single soul. none. Preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. You cannot say it off enough and you will begin to forget how important certain aspects of it are. If we get up every morning and the first thing that comes into our mind is this, is I'm saved by grace and grace only. Let me tell you something. Our day is going to be very different than it's going to be if it never passes through our mind the whole day. Grace is a free gift, absolutely free. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it, but God gives it. Freely.